Welcome to The Blind Side. News and information from a blindness perspective. Here's Jonathan Mosen. Thanks for downloading episode 76. No matter how you're listening to us, it is great that you are. And if you're enjoying the podcast, I would really appreciate it if you would take just a few seconds to give us a positive rating or a positive review or whatever the option is that exists in the podcast client you're listening with. For example, you can rate us in the Apple Podcasts app. You can recommend us in Overcast, which really does help a lot. There are all sorts of ways that you can just sort of give us a thumbs up. And it is it is great because there are so many podcasts out there. Anything that you can do to help us spread the word, well, you get good karma. That's what you get. In the main today, I am going to be talking about a subject I love to talk about, which is space. I've been practicing that, getting my mixer all lined up so I could do that. You see, can I do it again? Space. Yes, space, the final frontier. And we're going to be talking with a couple of people who have a fascinating story to tell. Because recently, among other people, students at the New Mexico School for the Blind and Visually Impaired had the chance to talk with astronauts on the space station. How amazing is this? You're talking to somebody who spent the summer, bear in mind I'm in the Southern Hemisphere, so the summer's just ending here. I spent my long summer break reading a lot of Carl Sagan and just marveling at the wonders of the universe. It's a fascinating subject to read. So we'll look forward to talking about these blind students who got the chance to connect with the space station, because not only is it the chance of a lifetime to talk to people, in my view, astronauts are still heroes. Maybe it's not such a popular thing to think now compared with the era of Apollo, but I just think it's fantastic. The risks that they take, the the things they have to do in order to become astronauts, the things they know. I mean, you've got to be something pretty special to be an astronaut. So to talk to those people, that's significant enough. But then to actually be able to put some curricular material together as a result of that, that's icing on the cake. So we will talk about that soon. And then I'm going to be talking about an experience that happened to me. Your humble podcast host has been in the news this week here in New Zealand. I want to talk briefly about the issue itself, although I will provide links to some of the key articles in the show notes, so I won't duplicate that too much. But it has got me thinking about blind people's place in society, the way that we are portrayed in the media, the concept of information access and how we convey it, and really how far we've got to go. We've made a heck of a lot of progress but we've got a long way to go. All that and more coming up on this edition of The Blind Side. Stick around. I appreciate that. And now, stories making news in the blind community on The Blind Side. Nice to have something a bit light every once in a while. And this is a good news story that caught my attention. So I thought I would share this with you. And we go to Corpus Christi, Texas, which is a nice place to go, actually. Hi, y'all out there. Now, this is to do with their police department because they have been busy organizing an egg extravaganza. Yes, you may say that is a foul yoke, <clears throat> but Easter is coming up, right? And uh, this is an egg extravaganza with a difference. It is called the Beeping Egg Extravaganza, and it's hosted every year, actually, by the South Texas Lighthouse for the Blind and members of the Bomb Squad for the Corpus Christi Police They've already been gathering together to make sure that the eggs are still working. So how does it work? Well, it says here that it's basically a simple circuit 
small toggle switch connected to a 9-volt battery hat, which is connected to a speaker, and that, of course, makes the beep. That's according to the technologist Matt Weishful. So they've already got the technology, they've tested it, they've used this over the years, and they're going to be doing it again in late March as Easter approaches a beeping Easter egg hunt. A lot of fun. Easter egg hunts generally involve chocolate eggs here in New Zealand. We're big chocolate egg consumers and that's what the kids expect but that sounds like a really fun thing so uh, congratulations to the police bomb squad in corpus christi for doing that year after year now would you like fries with that lawsuit mcdonald's is facing another federal class action complaint in the united states from customers who say the restaurant denies people with visual impairments equal access during late night drive-through only hours Karen Mori of Villa Park in California, who I haven't been able to track down, or we would have had a chat with her. If you're listening, Karen, drop me an email. She filed a complaint back in February in Chicago. She has macular degeneration and she can't drive at night, putting her in a class of people protected under the Americans with Disabilities Act. She says McDonald's discriminates against such customers when restaurants shift to drive-through only operations an exercise she documented from a late 2017 trip to the McDonald's in Orange, California, about three miles from her home. And what she's essentially arguing is that if you can't get to a McDonald's in a vehicle and they've gone into drive through mode, there's really no way that McDonald's can serve you. And she says that's discriminatory because you can't walk up through the drive through window. That's not allowed. They won't let you in the restaurant. So I suppose unless you took a cab or an Uber, you are out of luck for that Big Mac fix. And so there's a class action lawsuit about that. It would be really interesting to talk further about this and get your opinion about how you feel about being shut out of these things that go to drive through when you can't do the driving. And in other news, Microsoft has released another blindness-related app. They are prolific, aren't they? And it's, it's free. So the Seeing AI app has now become a go-to app for many people who have access to it, and they use it for checking mail and for reading images on Twitter and all sorts of things. It's, it's their product identification, of course, and we covered the Seeing AI app in a previous episode of the Blind Side podcast. Now they've released one a little bit more limited in terms of its availability. It's only available in the US and the UK for now. But it's important to note that Seeing AI also had fairly limited availability when it was released, and they did roll it out, so hopefully it will be rolled out to other countries sooner rather than later. This app is called Soundscape. I find it a good idea for this very reason, by the way, to have multiple App Store accounts so that when you get an app like this that you might really want to try and it's not in your App Store, you're not prevented from accessing it. You can just fire up your other App Store account. And if you want to know about that, I've got an audio book on it. It's called Imagine There's No Countries, and it is available in the Mosin Consulting store. But the Soundscape app is designed for being out and about, traveling, and you wear headphones of some kind. And the documentation does go to some trouble to say, don't cover your ears, obviously, because you need that for environmental clues. They say AirPods work quite well. Of course, you could use these bone conduction earphones, such as Aftershocks, which keep your ears completely free. And you're getting kind of 3D information about your environment. You can be told what you're passing. You can also get information about the, the world around you in a kind of a 3D format. 
So that is the Soundscape app. It is free. It's available right now in the US and UK stores. So if you go and search for Soundscape, give it a try. I'd be interested to know how you find it and whether it is one of those essential tools in the same way that for many people, seeing AI is an essential tool. Feel the need to sound off? Share your thoughts about this week's show by email. Send an audio file or write it down and email theblindside at mosin.org. Recently, a lot of attention has been paid to improving the accessibility of STEM subjects, science, technology, engineering and mathematics for blind people. Couple an important issue like this with real-world astronauts and, well, what's not to like, really? Recently, students at the New Mexico School for the Blind and Visually Impaired spoke with astronauts on board the space station. The event was organised in conjunction with the New Mexico Museum of Space. The museum was one of just 14 groups nationwide chosen by NASA to participate in the programme for Expedition 54 as part of the Year of Education on Station. To tell us about this exciting event and its impact on the students, I'm joined at the New Mexico Museum of Space by Mike Shinneberry and also by Jeffrey Killebrew, who is the science teacher at the New Mexico School for the Blind and Visually Impaired, and he's a legend in this field. He is the only person to have won the Louis Braille Touch of Genius Award twice, in both cases for teaching and learning tools that he's developed. Welcome to you both. It's a real pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thank you. It's nice to be here. We appreciate your interest. Yeah, thanks, Jonathan. Can I start with you, Jeffrey? You've been at the New Mexico School for 15 years now, so I guess not only are you good at what you do, but you must clearly love it. It, it sounds like teaching is kind of a calling for you. Uh, yeah, it is. I've uh, I've definitely found a home there at the uh, New Mexico School for the Blind and Visually Impaired. My students over the years have uh, have taught me tremendous things about uh what it's like to, to live as a person with visual impairments and blindness. And we've been able to do some good work uh, over the years with them. And uh, it just continues to grow. What got you into the field in the first place? Well, I've always wanted to be a, a science teacher. As I progressed through life, I finally uh, decided to finish my degree in, in, in science education. And uh, I had worked at the school previously before I finished up my, uh, my degree. And, uh, as it just so happens, uh, uh, I was at Walmart one day and our superintendent at the time uh, saw me at Walmart and asked me to come start the science program at the school because at that time there was none. And uh, ever since then, uh, we've just been uh, continuing to develop and uh, and uh, achieve what we need to for our students. And, uh, and I don't care to go anyplace else. What are some of the blindness-specific challenges that you perceive there to be in relation to STEM subjects and teaching them and learning them effectively? Oh, there's a wide variety, uh, you know, uh, teaching uh, abstract concepts in chemistry and physics, uh, biology, earth science, uh, trying to, to get those, those concepts of the small things like atoms and, and electrons and neutrons and protons uh, because the students really cannot see the diagrams that well. Uh, so, so trying to help them understand uh, the small and the very large. So we try to really give, give as much uh, hands-on experience as possible and to get our students involved in laboratory activities as much as possible. And you've had your own close connection with NASA even before all of this, right? Yes, uh, both, both Mike and I, we, uh, 
we were able to uh, fly on NASA's SOFIA aircraft, and SOFIA is the acronym that stands for the Stratospheric Observatory for Infrared Astronomy. Back in September of 2015, we were selected as uh, uh, Airborne Astronomy Ambassadors. We spent a week out in Palmdale, California, with the folks at the, uh, the SOFIA program, and we got to fly aboard the SOFIA aircraft twice and uh, uh, see how NASA does their work, uh, how they interact with, with each other, and, and bring that back home uh, to our respective institutions. Sounds amazing. Mike, tell me a bit about the museum. It sounds like a place I would absolutely love to visit. What do you feature at the, the New Mexico Museum of Space? Well, I have worked here for almost 12 years, and I just absolutely love it. We opened our doors in October, the first weekend in October of 1976. And what a lot of people don't realize, before NASA was in in uh, Huntsville, Alabama, or Redstone Arsenal, rather, before NASA was in Houston, Texas, and before there was a Cape Canaveral, the area in which we live was where at the end of World War II, the uh, German engineers and scientists that had worked on such projects as the V-1 and the V-2 came to this area, went to White Sands Missile Range, it was proving ground then, and began working with the United States Army on our, on our rocket and missile development program. And it was those rockets that eventually evolved into the Saturn V that boosted our astronauts out of the atmosphere to go to the moon in 1968 and 1969 into the early 1970s. So all of that started in this area and we have a lot of the artifacts that pertain to that area. Uh, many of the folks who worked in that industry were, were active in starting this museum. So we were able to get such artifacts as an original Sputnik. We had for a time until the Smithsonian recalled it here last year, the rocket sled that John Stapp on December 10th, 1954, rode to 632 miles an hour in five seconds and then came to a dead stop in 1.4 seconds. And if you get in a car in this country and put a seatbelt on, your seatbelt came directly out of that testing right there. We have a lot of the rockets, a lot of the missiles, a lot of the suits that were used in testing in this area. We have the base of a V-2 rocket and a rocket controller out in our John Stapp Air and Rocket Park. If you go through the floors, floor by floor, we start sort of at the top where we have the V-2. We have models of all of the space capsules, some smaller models. Uh, we go into other floors that have different hardware and items that were tested at Holloman Air Force Base and White Sands Missile Range. The, the first chimpanzee in space, HAM, which is an acronym for Holloman Aeromedical because HAM was trained here, is actually buried on the grounds of the New Mexico Museum of Space History. We have uh, an F-1 rocket in our rocket park. That uh, particular engine, there were seven of those engines on the bottom of the Saturn V when it launched toward the moon. They developed a total of seven and a half million pounds of thrust, those uh, rather five engines. And we have one of those on display and you can you can see just how large that engine is and why it would have taken that many to boost the Saturn V, which was something like 36 stories tall, 363 feet tall. 
We have the Daisy track that uh, was used for testing different materials in the 1950s and 1960s. It was an air-powered sled track. It was named after the Daisy rifle because of the Daisy rifle itself is air-powered. And you could, you could boost test subjects down the Daisy track first at 110 feet, then around 220 feet for about five cents worth of air. So compared to actual uh, costs of rockets, that was used highly. And it was on one particular, one particular mission that uh, a, an officer by the name of Captain Eli Beating experienced for just a short part of a second, an actual 83Gs. And most folks who rode those sleds uh, as did John Stapp on his rocket sled ride, came to a stop at about 43 G. So these folks endured a lot of, of testing to prove that man and woman could eventually go to space, could do so safely, and could come back alive. Right now, we have a Hall of Fame, and here a couple of years ago, we inducted Gene Roddenberry into our Hall of Fame as a visionary television producer. And we have an original Tribble from the Star Trek Troubles with Tribbles episode. We have the Lucite encased Enterprise that was used in the Cat's Paw episode. And we have the spears that were used in the Galis, uh, Galileo 7 episode, along with a lot of other art, uh, Star Trek uh, sort of paraphernalia, artifacts, books, that sort of thing. And Absolutely fascinating. You know, just listening to you talking about what's available there, it reminds me that there's always been a little bit of contention, hasn't there, about whether it's more efficient to just send vehicles up. And especially in this day and age where it's so easy to automate things and for certain tasks that's absolutely a no-brainer for very long-distance uh, travel and exploration. But there's something magical, isn't there, about put it, putting a human being in a vehicle and seeing them go to space, and, and nothing really captures the imagination quite like the moon landing. Yeah, Yes, you're absolutely right. Uh, and I think a prime example of that is on the 1968 lunar mission where the astronauts didn't land, but they went around the moon. We had, we had had some crude photographs that robotic uh, spacecraft took, seeing the Earth rise above the lunar horizon, the lunar landscape. But on that mission, on that Apollo 8 mission, for the first time ever, three astronauts sat in, Apollo, in an Apollo capsule and watched the Earth rise over the lunar landscape. Uh, they were just absolutely in awe. They took a picture of it. It was used on an American postage stamp. And you really can't compare a photograph to a human being sitting there and experiencing something of that magnitude and describing it. We put robotic aircraft on the or spacecraft on the surface of the moon, but they can't look down and say, hey, this looks interesting. Let me pick it up. Look at that formation. Let's go over there and look at it. So it's really the curiosity of mankind and our ability to look around and say, what can we do with this? What can we learn from that that a robotic spacecraft would never have been able to do? In terms of the museum, I know that museums are more and more interactive places. When I was a kid, going to a museum with the rest of my family was kind of just things behind glass and you'd have to get special permission for the blind kid to touch things. How interactive and accessible to blind people is the museum? Um, we have a, a lot of things you can actually uh, participate in. You can 
uh, set inside a, a mock-up of the Mercury capsule. We have what's called a rocket rumbler. You can stand on it and feel what the ground feels like when it's shaking, when you're watching a rocket take off from Cape Canaveral. And you bring up a really good point because here a couple of years ago, uh, we worked with the New Mexico School for the Blind and Visually Impaired. We had their students in here. We had classes where they could actually, Jeff could probably get more into detail on this, but where they could actually feel what the different spacecraft were like in relation to each other. So it wasn't just a spacecraft. Here's what it is. Here are the dimensions. Here's what's on the outside of that capsule. And I think Jeff could probably speak more to that. Yeah, we were able to, uh, to to give our kids the experience then of of being able to to tactually uh, kind of uh, compare the different uh, spacecraft. Uh, obviously, in a scale model sense, but uh, the the museum provided those models where we could uh, where the students then could be able to kind of gauge the size of those compared to uh, familiar objects. Here, in probably another week or two. We're going to be uh, using the museum's uh, scale models of the International Space Station, the Saturn V rocket, and a few other uh, uh, space vehicles. They're going to bring them down to our school where our students are going to be able to uh, get a, a really good hands-on uh, grasp of, of the overall structure of the vehicles and then also compare them to, the, uh, to, to, to familiar objects in their life. How did you two come to work together? Because obviously, if you, you, you're going back a few years now in terms of your collaboration. Well, that was the SOFIA, the Stratic, Stratospheric Observatory for Infrared Astronomy Program, uh, which requires in a community a formal science teacher, which would be Jeff, and an informal teacher, which would be myself here at the New Mexico Museum of Space History, uh, our education director, Dave Dooling, put in the application. We were chosen, and I, I don't really have any doubts that we were chosen because for the first time in that program, what was it, Jeff, then? three years old, I think? Yeah, at Two, that yeah. time, yeah, we were, we were yeah. three years old. So here's an opportunity to, to have a science teacher go up and take that knowledge back to his students who have visual impairments, and how do you teach those students what it was like. Well, Jeff did something that no one else had ever done before and created these tactiles that were part of our experience. And he can, he can detail those exactly for you. They were so popular on the flight that, that some of the Sophia pilots and staff wanted them. Yeah, what we did was, uh, we, to begin with, uh, we uh, we have a special embosser, and, and they're fairly fairly common among schools now. The Tiger embosser, and so we we took an image of the Sophia aircraft, which basically it's a 747 uh, aircraft that uh, NASA cut a big hole in the back end and put a hundred inch telescope in the back of it. So we took that and we we made a tactile graphic of that, and it allowed our students to get the overall feel of the aircraft and where the uh, the telescope was located at within the fuselage, which brought some conversations in and about, well, how can you have a hole in the aircraft and do, doesn't it get cold up there? How do you breathe? All those types of things. So we were able to answer those. Uh, we brought that picture out, uh, the Braille picture out to, to, to Palmdale with us. And uh, yeah, I, could, I couldn't, uh, I couldn't <laughs> keep any. They, they, they disappeared quickly among everyone out there. 
<laughs> Once we got back, then we further developed those tactile graphics. And for the first time, we we uh, were able to uh, make a graphic of uh, a, an actual Sophia image that uh, was of the black hole at the center of our Milky Way galaxy. Uh, you could see the uh, students could feel uh, tactually the the uh, jets of matter that were being sucked into the black hole, swirling in, um, be able to, to identify that. And so really, literally, the students were, were able to feel uh, this black hole. Let's talk about this extraordinary opportunity that the students have had to talk directly with um, astronauts at the space station and also, I imagine, to build a whole syllabus of topics around this. How was it that New Mexico got chosen to participate in something exciting like this? Well, our education director put a an application into NASA to be part of this program, and we were chosen. We learned about that sometime last year. So it took several months to actually get the program up and running. And I would imagine that that the handful of folks that have been accepted to do this over time prepare their questions and and then the event day comes and and they ask and that's the end of it. But we did something different here at the New Mexico Museum of Space History. Our education director, Dave Dooling, who used to work for NASA, thought that we'd try to give the students an understanding of the experimentation and the science that goes on on the International Space Station. So we created the standard size boxes that the students would come up with a project. And the project would have to do with weightlessness. How would different fluids react differently in weightlessness? How would different materials of various masses and densities work? And so they spent several weeks planning, preparing, putting their science packages together. And then what we're going to do is take those up and actually fly them in an airplane that does parabolas. We have a local pilot here who volunteered his services to do that by the name of Mike Ames. You may be familiar with the Vomit Comet. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) colloquial name for it. But that's how they teach astronauts about weightlessness. They go, uh, they do a steep ascent, then they go to a deep dive and they run these parabolas so that for about 30 seconds, you get the feeling of weightlessness. Uh, we, we probably will only get two or three, maybe four seconds of an actual weightless experience in each one of those packages when, when our education director takes it up. We'll have a camera inside of it. And that camera will record what the different fluids and materials are actually doing uh, during the steep descent. And then once they go into maybe some negative G's on on the return steep ascent. We did do a test and it worked out very well. And we wanted to fly those packages beforehand. But unfortunately, the weather here did not cooperate. We had winds one weekend. We had some rain and winds the next weekend. But we... Hopefully, in the next couple of weeks, we'll get to do that. So uh, once we were accepted through the application that Dave Dooling did, then we set about trying to get those students to learn how experimentation and science goes on on the space station, rather than just sitting down and come up and coming up with a question. And that took uh, 
That that took, I would say, we took our first package and made a first presentation to a school back in October. So we spent a good four months working with those students as those students during their classes and in their spare time came up with the with the different projects and the logistics of how to make them work. And that would have built up the excitement, right? I mean, by the time the day had finally arrived that this hookup with the space station was going to occur, I guess people would have been at fever pitch by that point. Uh, You're absolutely correct. It wasn't just a, we're going to do this. It was a hands-on thing. And I don't know about others, but hands-on is a much more satisfying learning experience with me. And I think educationally, it's been proven over many years that students really get far more benefit out of hands-on than just listening to facts and figures. So it did. It Once they realized, hey, this is real. Look at what we're doing. Look at what we're building. We're thinking. We're using our cognitive ability abilities. We're putting something together. It it, it was like one of those parabola, parabolas on the upswing. The... Uh, the excitement, as you said, just built and built and built. And what about the technical side of the link-up? I'm curious about that. How was it that you were able to technically connect with the space station? Well, NASA had a, a an IT person, of course. We have an IT person. We worked with the schools. They had an IT person. And NASA provided us with some special equipment that would link directly to the space station when that time actually came. So we uh, were able to use use uh, equipment they had to make that direct connection. What was the experience like, Jeff, for the students, for your for your students? They must have been just so excited to be actually in communication with actual astronauts in space. Yeah, you're exactly right, Jonathan. Uh, all I've heard this past week since we've been back and in our classes is when I had talked to the kids that they just say it was just awesome. Um, knowing that uh, we, we really can't uh, confirm it 100%, but very likely we were the first and only school for the blind and visually impaired in the nation to be participate in this. And for the students to be act- to be the only students uh, from a school uh, with visual impairments to, to be able to talk with the astronauts, um, I, I don't think they fully appreciate just yet because they're still pretty young, but uh, to understand the unique and awesome experience that they had. Um, unfortunately, not all of the students were able to, to talk with, with uh, uh, the astronauts. Uh, we had to pick some representatives because the downlink was only 20 minutes in length. And so we had to have uh, various students uh, kind of speak for the different groups. But I think everyone involved uh, really appreciated uh, this, this very unique opportunity. So it was a Q&A type session? Yeah, yeah, it was. Um, the, the the questions, we had to submit them ahead of time about a week beforehand so that NASA could vet them, uh, approve certain questions, and then edit them just a bit because when, during the program, it was recorded uh, uh, and it's on NASA's YouTube channel now. Uh, during the, the program, the, uh, the video uh, would cut back and forth between the student asking the question and then the astronaut who was answering the question. And when the student was asking the question, NASA had already pre-programmed and displayed the question on the screen for the the viewers watching at home. Wow. What sort of things were they most interested in getting answers to? Oh, my goodness. All all sorts of things. Uh, How um, does a microwave oven or does it work in space? um, 
how how does fire uh, burn in space? How does how does fire work? Uh, do how, how do you sleep? Uh, sleep. How it, it does the uh, uh, spacecraft that returns the astronauts to the Earth is that reusable? Um, yeah, a, a lot of different variety of questions. It sounds like just an absolutely amazing opportunity. And do you think it's going to have long term impact on? the students in terms of maybe thinking about career choices? At least they, they know a lot about the universe now that they may not have known about before. Yeah, you're exactly right. You know, we, we did this in conjunction with our local school district, the Alamogordo Public Schools. And so um, there was television news coverage there, newspaper coverage. And so that many of the students that were interviewed uh, have already said, now I'm thinking about being an astronaut. Now for my students, uh, being an astronaut may not be uh, a viable option. However, understanding that they can contribute in 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 the science community in ways that they never thought possible uh, is opening up to them now. And so, exploring new avenues through uh, working maybe with NASA in uh, this the technology side of things, offering their expertise in in the adaptive and assistive technology areas. Uh, with NASA is has been an exciting thing for the for my students. Hey Jonathan, I have to tell you an an analogy to that <clears throat> is I grew up in the state of Ohio here in the United States, about thirty minutes from Wapakoneta, Ohio, which is where Neil Armstrong grew up. Mm. And so, nineteen sixty nine, I was twelve years old when they went to the moon. You can just imagine the excitement around that part of Ohio that one of the local folks was going to be the first man to walk on the moon. And we studied that in school, and that was always at the back of my head. And here I am years later working in a space history museum. Yes, those things can have an enormous influence. You anticipated one of my questions, actually, Jeff, with your comment about blind people being astronauts and whether that's possible or not. I've had the privilege over the years of talking with people in a range of capacities who've been involved with astronomy or working with NASA, you know, people like Kent Cullors, who was a uh, astronomer with NASA for a long time and other people involved in the space program. Do you think there might ever be a chance that sometime in future a blind person with all of the technology that exists may well go into space themselves? You know, one, one thing I've learned uh, as a sighted person working with students with visual impairments is never say never. Mm -hmm. um, I think as technology uh, increases and, and I think we're in a time and age now where where the assistive technologies, it's it's more exciting than ever. Uh, what's available to my students and, and other students around the, the world uh, who have visual impairments um, is, is a very exciting thing. Um, they're able to uh, access not only their learning materials, but access each other around the world much more easily. And so I, I certainly hope that there will come a day and I believe that there will be when um, it really won't matter what a person can see, but it will matter more on their uh, uh, their abilities as a human being and to be able to be involved in, in these types of things. So I certainly hope it, it does happen. Early on in the space program, you had to be young and experienced. And John Glenn went back to space many years later. Uh, had to go through all the training. It wasn't a free ride. Had to go through the training, but to do geriatric studies in space too. And early on, there was probably a feeling that uh, someone of his age would never make it in, into space. And that happened. And yet, 
I can't help thinking that we've never really recovered from trying to get the first civilian school teacher in space and just through sheer happenstance that not working out. And we've become a bit more timid, I think, as a result. Um, yeah, but I, I, I think that I, I have to believe because I remember when that happened, I remember watching it on television that by that time, launches had become somewhat sadly commonplace and that disaster put spaceflight back into the public eye and I think probably energized a whole lot more people and made people aware of the successes that we were having and how that program had to continue. You've been watching the space program you know, for much of your life, Mike. How do you think it's shaping up in terms of future manned exploration? Um, there, there seems to be some debate that just goes on and on about how that happens, whether it should happen at all, and also some, I guess, maybe healthy competition between whether NASA is going to deliver or whether we will see a whole bunch of private operators get to the moon and even to Mars beforehand. I was disappointed. I think a lot of folks were after the Apollo missions when that program was canceled. There was a belief among a lot of folks that if we had continued, we would by this day and age be on Mars, you think about how many years ago that that actually occurred. Of course, in this country, a lot of that budget cutting was due to having to put money into the the Vietnam War. Mm. And then we had the Skylab program and the shuttle program and the International Space Station was built. We do see a lot of commercial development beginning to rise. We've seen the successes finally in commercial development, commercial uh, commercial space development. And if you look back at the early years of NASA, there were a lot of unfortunate accidents as well. There was that old joke, our rockets always blow up on the launch pad. We didn't have the successes early on in great numbers that we we eventually did uh, have. And I think you're seeing that on the commercial side right now, that there have been, there have been some, I don't want to say failures, but they're not where they want to be. And it does take time, but you saw this launch we had a few weeks ago where Elon Musk put the, put the Tesla into space on its way to the, uh, on, on its way to wherever it ends up going. And the successes in that field are starting to rise. And I, uh, NASA, I don't doubt, will always be there, always doing experimentation. But we're seeing some competition through prizes and entrepreneurship that private companies are beginning to undertake. And some of these people that run these private companies have had great successes in other industries. And this is a dream of theirs. And as they had a dream in their other businesses and saw that succeed, I don't think they're going to give up. I think uh, one day that these private companies, and I sure would like to see it in my lifetime, will put a man and a woman or several folks on to Mars. Uh, so I, I think with the competition between private companies and NASA, the future of space is in good hands. I hope so. I hope I live long enough to see that happen. And of course, here in New Zealand, we have Rocket Labs, which now has some American investment. But um, for a small country of four and a bit, no, five million people now, 
to uh, be putting rockets in space. We're, we're pretty proud about that ourselves too. So it is an exciting thing. I want to thank you both so much for uh, sharing this with us. I, this stuff really does excite me and it thrills me to know that some blind students have had this up close and personal experience. So thank you so much for sharing it. It's been great. Uh, we appreciate your, your interest, Jonathan. And if you're ever in the area or your listeners are in the area, come visit us at the New Mexico Museum of Space History. And just before I do go, I presume you do have a website that you could refer listeners to, right? nmspacemuseum.org. That's our website. We're on Facebook. We post regularly things that are going on on our Facebook page, such as our our Rocketeer Academy, our summer camp programs. We have a tour coming up in April to Trinity site where the first atomic bomb was actually detonated. So we have something here going on all of the time. And if you follow us on our webpage or Facebook, you'll be up to date. And if you get a chance to visit, it will make your experience that much more rewarding. And Jeff, a final word from you before we go. Uh, yeah, Jonathan, I just would love to say hello to my students there at the New Mexico School for the Blind. Uh, I'm not with them this afternoon as I'm talking with you, but uh, hello, everybody. And uh, I'll be back with you pretty quick and uh, we'll keep exploring. Our place. Our issues. The Blind Side with Jonathan Mosen. I have been doing quite a bit of self-advocacy over the last few days, and it has got me thinking. This is in relation to the 2018 census here in New Zealand. If you follow me on Twitter or you're a friend of mine on Facebook or whatever, you will have seen the blog posts that I posted that sort of unfolded in real time as I was grappling with the issues caused by Statistics New Zealand's lack of adherence to just decent accessibility practices. Now, I'm not going to rehash that long story, because if you go to the Mosin Consulting website at mosin.org, you will be able to read on my blog, probably the best one to read is the formal complaint that I have now lodged with Statistics New Zealand, the agency that administers the census, because it was written a few days after this whole thing was going down. Uh, so my thought processes have been crystallized a little bit. It's a succinct summary of exactly what went on and why I find it so objectionable. I also will put in the show notes another concern about the census, and this has come from Pam McNeil, and we've talked with Pam before. She is from Disability Responsiveness New Zealand, and she also has a long background in the disability sector in various capacities. And what is sad about the census is when you, when you can get your code and actually get into the thing, there are some questions about disability that are all about physical capacity and difficulty. It's simply asking, are you having difficulty seeing? Are you having difficulty hearing? And then there are degrees of difficulty that you can respond to. But it does not deal with how disabling as a society are we in New Zealand. And the question wording is very unfortunate. And I congratulate Pam for taking up that particular cudgel. So if you are interested in this accessibility issue, do check out the links in the show notes or you can go to mosin.org, choose the blog link and you'll be able to read my update there. But what I want to talk about here on the blind side is the wider issues that this has got me thinking about. Here in New Zealand, at least, we are still, as disabled people, very marginalised. I can't think of anybody with a truly significant disability in the media we lost the only politician that we had 
with a significant disability at the last election, Mojo Mathers, who we spoke with here on The Blind Side. My perception is that the number of people with disabilities participating in the public service appears to be less than it once was, at least in prominent positions, positions of real influence. When I was managing the government relations program for what was then the Foundation for the Blind in New Zealand, I met with a parliamentarian, at that time she was a new parliamentarian, Tariana Turia, who is a member of the indigenous Maori people of New Zealand. And she instantly got disability because she understood what it was like to be marginalised, to have other people know what's best for you, and to have other people make decisions on your behalf about everything from allocation of resources to really validating your point of view, even though they have no direct experience of disability on which to base their assumptions. It's not my position to say whether it's perfect. I suspect it's nowhere near perfect. But over time, people have understood that concept thanks to activism. Of course, that most quotable of US presidents, Theodore Roosevelt, said it best when he talked about speaking softly and carrying a big stick. Of course, you've got to be able to get in a room and negotiate with someone and work constructively and be polite. But your position is strengthened when you have the ability to rally the troops, when it's understood that if there isn't really meaningful progress on substantive issues, there will be action. There'll be public consequences. Because if there's one thing that politicians really hate, it's public humiliation and bad press. Politicians like to be liked in general because otherwise they don't get re-elected, right? And what has happened, in my view, in the disability sector in New Zealand is that people have gotten used to getting into rooms, having long meetings and conversations and strategic planning exercises, and being told that, yes, things will improve, things will come. And the benefits, if any, are so incremental and so infrequent that they're really not that tangible in most cases. And what happens then, of course, is that the rank-and-file members lose confidence in the collective advocacy organizations because they're not delivering. So when you're looking for an advocacy outcome, there are actually two objectives to be met. On the part of the politicians or the decision makers, how is this going to make me look good? And on the part of collective advocacy organizations, it's, is this best for my constituency? And is it demonstrating that we deliver that it's actually worth participating. And if you can't deliver, and if it's not worth participating, these organizations die a very slow death, which is, in my opinion, what is happening here in New Zealand. The good news is, though, that individuals have the ability to conduct very effective self-advocacy campaigns or mini-advocacy campaigns without the need for collective advocacy organizations. And collective advocacy organizations need to understand that. If they descend into irrelevancy, then anybody who understands an issue, knows how to use social media, understands the legal redress available to them through various government entities, they will go on without them. And they may form just small niche groups on an issue-by-issue basis to go on without them. 
Another way that you can measure the effectiveness of a collective advocacy organisation is how badly a government entity screws up. Because if a government entity screws up badly, it shows that the networks have broken down. One of the things that I was most proud of when I did manage the government relations program back in the 1990s here was that we eventually established that speak softly and carry a big stick culture. And the consequence of that was that eventually we got in a position where government officials would come to us and say, we are thinking of doing this. We're looking at introducing this legislation or we're looking at introducing a change to the way that some particular thing is done. How will this affect blind people and how should we best approach this to be inclusive or not be disruptive? The fact that Statistics New Zealand didn't have the ability to dispense accessible codes directly shows a woeful neglect of this constituency. And it shows that the current collective disability advocacy system in New Zealand has broken down. The other thing I've been giving considerable thought to is information access, that concept of the barriers that we as blind people face and how many people find them far harder to understand than physical barriers. And I've realized that sometimes it does help to draw a parallel One of the problems we have is that because we are a small minority and because we're quite invisible, there are a lot of people out there who still don't know that a blind person can even use a computer or a smartphone or, for that matter, listen to a podcast like this one. So it's really hard to get past those preconceptions of somebody closing their eyes and saying, man, if I were blind, I couldn't do this. And so nor can the person that I'm talking with. As I've been talking to officials and journalists and politicians about the census issue here in New Zealand in the last few days, I've used an analogy that does seem to work with most of them. And that is, imagine that you are in a wheelchair and you're faced with a building that has a big flight of steps. And somebody takes you out of that wheelchair and walks you up the steps Then they have to plonk you down at the top of the steps and they go down again. They pick up the wheelchair, they bring the wheelchair up to the top of the steps and then they lift you and they deposit you back in the wheelchair. Have you worked around the accessibility problem? Well, yes, you probably have worked around the accessibility problem. Is it equitable? Is it dignified? Is it fair? Is it acceptable in society in 2018 to do that, to prohibit somebody from independently accessing a public building? No, it isn't. And if a government entity requires somebody to read something to you or requires you to go to a third-party agency to read something to you, then that is not accessibility. That is a workaround, hopefully a temporary workaround, for a serious accessibility issue. Now, when I drew that analogy, people did seem to get it. So sometimes I think we have to frame things in a way that helps people understand our information accessibility issues. But I'm feeling very encouraged. I'm feeling pretty upbeat about this because a number of journalists did take up the story. I do know how to make some noise on social media and how to do a media release and all of those good things. And I have a number of official complaints. And by the way, for people listening to this from New Zealand, 
I also have a parliamentary petition. A really exciting development with the New Zealand Parliament that has occurred just this week is that the parliamentary e-petition system has gone live. In the past, it's been necessary in New Zealand for you to have a paper petition presented to Parliament. Now you can do the whole thing online and you can solicit signatures. There will be a link to the petition in the show notes. If you can't read the show notes, you can go to parliament.nz and choose the petitions link. And my petition on the census is there. I would encourage people, obviously, to sign that petition. So there are all sorts of things that we can do. It does feel sometimes disempowering to face an accessibility barrier. And it's important not to get angry. There's a difference between anger, which in my view is not a particularly constructive emotion, and it just causes people to want to respond in anger back, and firm but constructive, relentless advocacy. And there is a lot now as blind individuals that we can do if we are articulate, if we make sure we are respectful, we spell check our stuff, you know, we look like we really understand and know what we're doing. We can affect change as individuals. It's really a very exciting time to be around. And so I kind of view this census issue as a gift. So often the way that we feel about something is up to us, right? And I wish I didn't have to spend so much time advocating on this issue. I wish I could have just phoned up, told them I'm blind, got a code by text and got on with my life. But since that wasn't possible and I hope it will be in 2023, it is pretty cool to think that one individual who's committed to a cause and knows that their cause is right can cause something to get on the TV and radio news, can get some political attention, a comment from the relevant minister. We can all do that. And I would be really interested in learning about any self-advocacy stories that you have to share, no matter where in the world you are, if you felt strongly about something and you've thought to yourself, I can make a difference here, I can turn this around and you've done it, I really would like to hear from you because I may even be able to pay you for your story. We are looking at producing a webinar on effective self-advocacy, how you can use the online tools that are out there today to advocate for yourself in a constructive way that gets results. If you'd be interested in such a webinar, do let me know that too, so we can gauge interest. But it is a great time to be a blind person if you want to constructively rattle some cages. Go us. Thanks for listening to The Blind Side, a production of Mosin Consulting. On the web at mosin.org.